0: Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, It feels like it's been a long time since I've been up here. It really hadn't been that long, but Jared and I both really love to preach. Uh, We're also grateful to be able to share that, uh, to have more than one voice, but speaking the same truth, but also um, to have times where we can reflect and meditate and study more uh, in those times between and so we're grateful for a church that allows that. And in fact, we have many reasons to be grateful for The Crossing Church. In a series like this, we're, we're highlighting what makes us unique as this body of believers. I can't help but get excited thinking about this is the church that I belong to. This, this is my family. We're on mission together. Together, we're exalting Christ and, and seeing uh, that we're called to something far more than to live individual Christian lives. Uh, doing good, patting ourselves on the back, and then burying ourselves in shame when we fail. You know, we run through these cycles. And already this morning, Christ has been exalted in many ways, in, in, in music and in prayer, in the reading of Scripture. And I hope that you, you come to this place on Sunday mornings excited to worship this Jesus. I hope that you enjoy Jesus and you want to fellowship with other believers because together we're the body of Christ. And we joined together to have a corporate voice and singing praises to this God who's at work and moving in us and through us to, to live lives on mission that more and more people would come to know this Jesus. I hope you're excited about that. But I'm, I'm, I'm not only excited, I feel very blessed and, and grateful to belong to this body. As a pastor, as a leader, as a, as a lead servant, but as a member of this body. So I want to I take a moment to share that. Uh, off notes. Because I just feel it in this moment, and I hope you do as well. We as the Crossing Church desire to see all people enjoy Christ always by following Him and being changed by His gospel. That's our vision. It's been our vision since the brainstorming that we did early on. Uh, But it's been our vision since the inception. The brainstorming was just to find the right words, and we still don't know if they're perfect, but they're, they're as simple as they can be, getting to the point as quickly as possible. We as a church enjoy Jesus and we want everyone to enjoy Jesus. The only possible way that happens is the gospel moving and working in us and through us. His gospel changes us and continues to change us and will one day free us altogether from the presence of sin. And we want that for more people. And I think it's true. If you, it's very simple. If you enjoy Jesus, then you find freedom from sin. And if you enjoy Jesus, you want others to enjoy Jesus. Just like you would say about anything, if you enjoy pizza, you want other people to try it. If you enjoy a good movie, you want other people to see it. If you enjoy a good book, you want other people to read it. but on, on a profoundly deeper and eternal in a profoundly deeper and eternal way, we enjoy Jesus. We were designed, created to enjoy him. We spend our lives seeking that satisfaction elsewhere. He reveals Himself to us, and then we continue to turn to other things over and over again. He continues to come after us. His grace is always sufficient, drawing us to Himself that we would enjoy Him again and again and again. And we have to start there. If we don't start there, what we're talking about today will not be easy. Um, As we continue to work through this covenant that we have written out, we we make a, a strong point every time that. The covenant is not a list of expectations that the church is burdening you with. This covenant is an agreement. It's, it's, a, it's a bond together before God that we would live lives as He's called us to live, free to live lives as He's called us to live. Now we are, we are very much a slave to sin before Christ, and when we're bought back from slavery, we belong to Christ. So in every way, it is a demand. It's a command. We shall obey. However... It's not like following the laws of earth. If you are thinking, even the slightest bit, if you're thinking, I'm signing this contract and have to obey all these things or else, you're missing it. There's a freedom in this. Church discipline isn't a punishment because you've been bad. Please understand, no one expects you to be perfect. We know that every individual in this room is a failure including ourselves, we know all of us fall short. No one's good enough. We're all in desperate need of a Savior, and Christ is that Savior. No one's righteous on their own. No one can attain righteousness on their own. This, this easy believism that I said a prayer, so now I'm a Christian, and I just live my life modifying my behavior, is not Christianity. Christianity says you're not good enough. Sin issues are not behavior issues, they're nature issues. You and your very nature are not good enough. You're a sinner. So Christ has been crucified on your behalf. And in Christ, sin is put to death, and you are given new life. You're a new create, creation. You have a new nature. And this new you lives in line with every point of commitment on this covenant to find greater joy and greater freedom in this gospel that we proclaim. It's a joy. I hope that you see it's a joy to join in this. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're walking through this, that everyone that's been going along with us, that started the member profile and started reading the book, started reading through the covenant, hasn't finished signing, everyone that's been a part of this and and almost done, I want you to see this is a joy. You should be eager to get this done, to be in. If you're in, get in. Covenant with us. And for those who've been with us for the community and for the mission, Grateful to have you. You're welcome to continue along, but I hope that as we walk through this, you have this excitement stirring in you to be a part of this. How beautiful this is. To be all in. Just to get done with the dating phase and put a ring on it already, right? <laughs> there's, there's so much more to enjoy. And I really hope you see it. This, it cannot be this, this, Jared mentioned last week, this moralistic therapeutic deism. This idea that God exists, but he's detached and aloof. And he designed everything to work, and he's just sitting back. And now we have to work really hard to fix everything. And we have some good scripture we can take out of context to to soothe our souls in right moments. But for the most part, we're just going to live our lives for ourselves, establishing our own kingdom and calling ourselves Christians. It's a pathetic life, and it's a miserable life. It's a, it's a swinging back and forth of self-righteousness and shame. Self-righteousness and shame. It's never freedom. And the gospel frees us. Gives us new nature to cause something, something greater. And we have to start that by asking who is God? Not who am I and what do I need to do? But who is God? So the shift that we're talking about is not a method shift. It's a theological shift. Who do you believe God is? Is He, is he who He says He is? Did he do what he said he was going to do? And if he did, then we can be made new. Then we can look at who we are. Then we can look at what we do. But the questions we ask is, who is God? What has he done? And then who are we as a result of that? And what do we do in light of this gospel truth? Who is God? What has he done? Who are we as a result? And then what do we do in light of this truth? We have to do it in that order. Can't get it mixed up. Can't leave parts out. It's not an end-all, but it's a tool to assess where our belief is. And We need to have hearts in the right place as we continue to walk through these points because if we just look at them as these rules that we have to follow, we're going to burden ourselves. We're going to fall back into the same habits. We're going to be legalistic. We're going to end up in a ditch somewhere. Figuratively, but maybe literally also. So let's pray before we get into this. Pray with me. Father, help us to see who You are. We are flawed and broken in many ways. This morning as we discuss sexual immorality, we know, some of us know very well, the shame that comes along with that. So I pray that there would be a sense of freedom in this place this morning, that we would rejoice because Christ is better. We would rejoice because You have done everything necessary to free us from this as I feel so burdened and have felt so burdened this week praying for us, praying for those who would hear these words this morning, I pray even now that we would have peace knowing we're clothed in Your righteousness. We are pure and forgiven. You have called us to something more. That our failures are not an end. Your law is not a burden to crush us, but a grace to show us we need Christ and you have given us Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. That's our introduction. Okay. um, I really enjoy fire. I'm not a pyromaniac, but I like fire. It's fun. Sometimes. We had a fire at our elder meeting last night. Scott throws a party every time we have an elder meeting. <laughs> just so you don't know. No. He's like, all right, I got the fire pit ready. Kendrick, you're bringing the stuff to make coffee. And Jared's coming with the business plan. We're going to walk through it. He's boring. It's okay, though. We got to have him. We got to have him. I'm just kidding. He's not boring. He's just more boring than some others. All right. <clears throat> Anyway, we had a fire going, and the temptation was constant for me. I just wanted to throw things in this fire the entire time. Whatever I could find, There's pine straw underneath me. Every time I started dying down, I just threw chunks of pine straw. you get to flame up. I had to back away because it was getting so hot. The point is, I like fire. All my life, since some neighborhood kid showed me, you can pour alcohol on the floor and light it, and it burns in like this blue and almost clear flame. You can feel the heat, but you can't really see it. It's fascinating. It's bad for the floor. I don't recommend it, but it's fascinating. Burning stuff in candles, hairspray and aerosol cans with matches, all kinds of stuff. Things that incredibly foolish, but I was a child and occasionally as an adult. But the point is, fire is fun. Fire is good, right? Fire can be fun. Fire can be good. Fire can also be incredibly destructive. By the grace of God, i never burned anything down, but I'm aware that that's a possibility. And even like a couple weeks ago, I was burning stuff in a candle in my house. What's wrong with me, right? People have been killed by fire. Land has been totally destroyed by fire recently on the West Coast. Fire destroys. Fire is incredibly destructive, but also when I put a fire in a fire pit or in my fireplace at home, it's warm and it's beautiful and the crackling is fun to listen to and the smells that fill the house are enjoyable, right? Fire can be a very pleasant thing in the right context. If I were to remove the fire from my fireplace and set it in my living room floor, we're going to have problems. It's going to burn the house down. Hopefully you're picking up on what I'm putting down. This is how we to understand the gifts of God. Sexual, sexual intimacy specifically it has a design, it has a purpose, it has a place. And in the right context, it's wonderful, and it's beautiful, and it's meant to be enjoyed. But outside of that context, it's incredibly, devastatingly destructive. And many, many, many people throughout history have been destroyed by it. And many in this room have suffered because of it not to be played with. If you play with fire, it can get dangerous. And it can destroy. Our Father has blessed us with good gifts. He's blessed us with many good things and He desires for us to enjoy them. He's the giver of good things. We should worship Him for being the the giver of these good things. Never allowing our enjoyment to terminate on the thing. The temptation is to worship creation over the Creator. And we should never give in to that because there's far more to enjoy when we worship the Creator. And He has made us to experience satisfaction by design. We are satisfied by things. He wants us to be satisfied and to be ultimately satisfied in Him. It's it's our self-centered pursuit of satisfaction that leads us to abusing these good gifts in disastrous ways. Not just sex, but money and and food and drink and life itself is worshipped as an idol. And it leads to destruction. So let's let's take it way back to the very beginning when God originally set this thing in motion. In the beginning, the Creator created all things and saved the best for last. He made man and He made woman in His image. That's Genesis chapter 1. He created them, man and woman, in His image. And then in chapter 2, we, we zoom in a little bit and we get a little detail on how it played out. So I want to read some, some parts of chapter 2 so we can see in this land of Eden, all things were well. Everything was good by the profession of the Creator. All things were good. And man and woman were, were very good. But before He gave woman to man, there was something missing. There was something lacking. And there was no man to cultivate the or rule the land verse 7 then the lord god formed the man of the of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils and breathed the breath of life and the man became a living creature so god with his very hands formed man from the dirt and with his very breath gave him life and now we have this man to cultivate the land to, to rule over the land. And, and the Lord puts a garden in Eden, the garden of Eden, and He puts it between some rivers. And among the rivers, the, the plants and the trees flourish and produce fruit. And Adam is free. That's the name of the man. <laughs> I didn't say it before. Adam is free to eat of anything, any tree he wants except for one. God gives him this one Rule! Don't, don't eat from this one tree. And then we have this establishment of law to govern the actions of man. But later we'll learn that more than to govern the actions of man, the law actually serves to expose the heart of man and, and expose our need for Christ. Our need for a Savior. Immediately following this command to not eat of that one tree, we see something else take place in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. So of all things he's created, everything has been good. And finally, he says something's not good. And that's that man is alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Jump to verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, or more appropriately, he sang, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Praise the Lord, right? Adam did, right? He bust into song. Beholding the sight of his wife, Uninhibited by insecurity, both of them totally free in the garden, nothing in all of creation compared to the sight he was beholding. And he sang. He praised God for this gift that is his wife, naked and unashamed. He sings with delight to the glory of the Lord, the giver of this gift. Now, can you imagine the reality? I know you can't. We cannot even imagine the reality of freedom like like they're experiencing. Total freedom from shame and insecurity. None of it. No shame, no insecurity. Standing before one another, totally vulnerable, rejoicing. And joined together in perfect unity, they're free from sin. And what are they to do? Just two things. One of, one of the two things is a don't do. And we talked about that one. Don't eat of that tree. And the one, the other is a do. <laughs> and that is given by the Lord back in chapter 1, zooming back out. We have both man and woman. Chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The Lord is declaring here and elsewhere that He has designed it. That His creation, man and woman, shall inhabit the earth, fill the earth, and rule it. He wants to fill the world with His people. To worship Him, to enjoy creation. Make babies and rule the world. That's what they were to do. Man and woman were designed by the Creator to complement one another. And that's evident here already. That's, that's psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, we complement one another. But specifically for today's context, physically, man and woman were designed to complement one another. It makes sense. Because that's how God designed it. And it's, we're necessarily distinct in roles, though we're equal in value. Both Together, good, distinct in roles. So so procreation helps us have a better picture of how God designed this to work. Both man and woman are necessary. Both man and woman fit together. And man and woman complement one another in this perfect design to fill the world with the people of God to worship the Creator. How gracious is our Creator to make such a process a joy to experience not just the experience of of making the offspring, but also the offspring themselves are a joy to experience, a blessing from the Lord. This was God's design in the beginning before sin entered the world. And then chapter 3 of Genesis. and Everything is broken. The enemy comes in to destroy the unity. The enemy comes in to destroy the perfect gifts. Lying to the woman, as the man passively allows it to happen, not protecting his bride. Giving in to the sin himself. And it's because of the sin of Adam the world is flawed. The world is broken. All these good gifts become idols. The fire begins to destroy rather than warm and celebrate. And what we're missing is that that we no longer are worshiping the Creator, but we're Worshiping the creation. We sense there's something wrong. All of mankind sense there's something wrong, and that's why we have this never-ending quest for satisfaction. And distorting the gifts of God to try and indulge the flesh. We have these urges. The flesh has these urges. We have to satisfy them, right? That's the that's what's in the minds of, of every man who's ever lived. I gotta satisfy the flesh. However, the gift of God has been designed like all things to glorify the Creator. So the satisfaction doesn't terminate on the gift. And if it does, it's distorted. It's abused. It's misused. It leads to destruction every time. It's with this framework, seeing the perfection of the Garden of Eden, knowing the redemption available in Christ that could be better than that perfection. Somehow, redemption in Christ can be better Knowing all of this, seeing the the broader picture, seeing the the story of the gospel throughout history and the the position of the church in the world today amongst the brokenness, knowing all of this, the driving desire to see God glorified and to see the people of the crossing specifically freed from the shame and the slavery bound to sexual sin and, and to enjoy fully the pleasures of sexual intimacy to the fullest in the context that God designed it, With all of that in mind, we covenant to maintain, this is point seven on our covenant, to maintain total sexual purity until married. If married, you will maintain complete faithfulness to your spouse, fidelity, and faithfulness requires purity and abstaining from all forms of sexual immorality. As an example, adultery, premarital sex, and pornography. As an example, the list could go on. The aim is not to identify all the ways in which we would sin and try our hardest not to do them. The aim is to see Jesus is better and pursue Him with everything because He's made a way. There's no need to have an exhaustive list of examples, but just so we're aware, this is what it looks like. The Apostle Paul also gives us several lists elsewhere. Look some up. To have a better idea of what we're talking about when we consider sexual morality, I want to look at 1 Corinthians Chapter 6. You can open your Bibles there if you'd like. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read through, or 12 through 20. And we'll talk as we go. Verse 12 All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. This is the Apostle Paul writing the church in Corinth, who are are taking in these sayings from the culture that aren't totally off base, but a saying like all things are lawful for me would have been drawn from that culture. But Paul's saying, look, it's true. All things are lawful, you're free to do whatever you want. But keep in mind not everything is helpful, not everything is beneficial. All things are lawful, but you will be dominated. You will be controlled. You will be destroyed if you play with fire. And you shouldn't be dominated by anything. Sexual morality, without a doubt, has dominated many people, even within the church. I've been been doing ministry, starting with college ministry, since 2007. So 10 years now, I've, I've never, never talked to a single man. Who didn't struggle with some form of sexual morality? It's never happened. Some in a way that was crippling. So you will be dominated by these things if you live as if you can do whatever you want because you're free to do whatever you want. So, all things, you are free to do whatever you want, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are beneficial because they will dominate you. Verse 13 Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, or, and, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. So it may seem like a strange transition to start talking about food, um, but the Corinthians, the, the Christians in Corinth, are treating sex like they treat food. I have this desire, I have this hunger, i got to satisfy it. And Paul's making this point. It's not the same. You cannot compare the two. Your body is involved in this immoral act. And you are part of the body of Christ. You don't just give in to urges. You're not led by the flesh anymore. That you is dead. That's the old you. The new you is compelled by the love of Christ. You're controlled by the love of Christ. And the love of Christ would never lead you such sinful acts you belong to the lord the body is the lord's and against the body of christ you cannot have such an immoral act because that defiles christ himself verse 16 or do you not know sorry i skipped verse 15 or do you not know now do you not know, happens to be the first line in both those verses, also in verse 19. Or do you not know? It's as if he's getting this point across. There's something you don't know here. So let me ask you a rhetorical question. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. With an emphasis. Never. So because you're members of the body of Christ, your sexual morality is against the body of Christ. And because of the way God has designed sex, we cannot be united in sexual morality because we'll unite Christ to a prostitute. Should that ever be the case? Never. And we know that. It's obvious. So why then do we feel the freedom to rule over our own bodies and submit ourselves to sexual morality? That's his point here. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So by God's design, sexual union is a consummation of the marital union. It's it's declaring it to be complete. By his design, it's the inauguration of the covenant. And every time a husband and wife share a sexual intimate moment, they are renewing that covenant every time. It's a physical act that symbolizes something so much more for the husband and wife. But... Moreover, it shadows an intimate relationship that we are to have with God our Father. It's a taste of the satisfaction that we will enjoy for eternity with God the Father. When Scripture speaks of sexual union between a husband and wife, it uses the term to know, right? Adam knew Eve and they bore a son. Now we figure out what happened in there. And it's by God's design. It's not like he looked down and was like, what are you doing? Stop doing that. He wanted it to happen, right? He created it to happen. Adam knew Eve and they bore a son. And the same word, both in Hebrew and in Greek, the same word that's used in that context is used in the same context that describes God knowing us. This deep intimacy to be fully known, fully vulnerable, without insecurity, without shame totally bare before our King and loved for who we are. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There's something far beyond what we're making it. So, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Verse 19, or do you not know That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. A temple is a house of worship. Your very life is a living sacrifice and worship to the king. Therefore, sex is worship. It should be. It's meant to be. It's designed to be worship to the giver of all things. And if it's not, it's worship of something else. You, the other person, the act itself, the experience, whatever it might be. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So as with everything our covenant, in our covenant, we are only talking about what God is calling us to. So in this passage, we see what God has called us to. It's very easy to read this passage and feel burdened by responsibility, to feel overwhelmed by shame because we are all failures. But God has called us to something and by His grace done everything necessary to make it possible. Please know that your Father looks at you and sees purity and sees righteousness. You are forgiven if you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He was perfect. He alone was perfect. So if you only believe, if you only trust in Him, if you only seek to find satisfaction in Him, enjoy Him in all of life, you are pure. You are blameless. You are holy. And it's our hope that we can see this not as a command or demand, though it is a demand, a command. It's not that we see it in that way and feel burdened by it, but that we see it's a grace of God. Any commandment of God is a grace of God. And it's our hope that we see it's a plea to see there's something better. than the the counterfeit pleasures of the world will never satisfy in the way that you can be satisfied there's something better. Affirming and committing to this covenant is not a contractual law to be followed or else. You cannot view it with an or else. It's a plea to come and enjoy Christ more fully. It's not against you, it's for you. To paraphrase Tim Keller, if we knew all that God knew, and if we could see completely what God sees, if we could control things like God controls, we would choose precisely what it is He commands of us. We would do exactly what it is He calls us to do if we knew all that He knew, if we could really see all that He is. So why would we choose anything over Jesus? Why would we choose sexual morality over Jesus? It's a question to ask following all of that. Because we don't believe He's better. And why would we choose Jesus over sexual sin? Because He's better. Why would we settle for... Why would we want something outside of how God designed it, knowing that if we lived within how God designed it, there's greater joy, there's greater satisfaction. The only reason you pursue sexual sin is because you're after satisfaction. Can we have... The ding, like let irony set in like let's figure this out together. Just work through it logically. There's greater joy. There's, there's more to enjoy. There's deeper satisfaction. There's more than we could even comprehend to be completely free from all inhibition and be in the right place at the same time. It's not let go of all the rules and do whatever you want so you can find satisfaction. It's fall into the arms of your father and find all that you need. And that's my problem with things like true love weights. I'm, I'm not against it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm never going to like boycott or rally against true love weights. If you did it, that's great. I did it too. right? Or I tried. True love weights is a thing that we do in the, in the Christian culture that is a good idea, but it often leads to some horrible results. In my experience, it's not tied well enough to Christ. It's not tied well enough to the gospel, the freedom that there is in the gospel. And so what we end up having is this promise before their parents, the teenagers make promises to their parents and before God and the church to abstain from sex until they're married, which is obviously a good idea. You should do that. However, what ends up happening is we compartmentalize this area of our lives, and we never talk about it again. (laughs) Some people do, but we just hold on to this promise that we made, and at best, and I hesitate to even use the word best, some people make it because they're terrified of letting their parents down or disappointing God. Or if we're more honest, there just wasn't a lot of interest in temptation, right? Nobody was trying trying anything, so you were able to make it through. And then some people, they distort definitions and, well, I didn't go all the way, so I made it. And they pat themselves on the back and count it as a win. And then, there, and then there's some who just fail. And unfortunately, those who, quote, succeed at true love weights, boast in it and create this, this higher level of Christianity for everyone who kept their virginity to the shame of everyone who failed. This is my experience. I think it's a pretty broad experience, but I still want to leave the room for those who had, who had it centered around the gospel and, and were able to use this as a healthy tool to abstain and to, to be pure to the glory of God. And I, and I celebrate that with you. However, from my experience, I, I see a lot of people broken and ashamed or boasting in self-righteousness. And, and it's not just true of weights, it's other things. Crush the crush. Whatever you want to call it. I don't know if you know that one. It's a good one. <laughs> Might be more charismatic camp. That's why I knew it. <laughs> the point is, there's not a lower class of Christianity and a higher class of Christianity. It's certainly not defined by whether or not you are able to abstain. There's freedom in Christ, period. There's righteousness in Christ, period. It's all there is. Your only hope. So if you made it, if you survived and made it to marriage or you're still fighting the fight, I don't want to make light of that. Even though I just did. I don't want to make light of that. Celebrate Jesus. It's by the grace of God. Not by your willpower. Not by your determination. God has been gracious to you. But some have suffered tremendously from sexual sin. I've I've wept with people who have buried themselves so deep under shame because they didn't make it. So let's celebrate Jesus on both sides of this. Let's celebrate Jesus. Can we celebrate Jesus? Can we enjoy Jesus? Can we make it about Him and Him alone? The reason we have sexual sin is the reason we have any sin. The lie that was started in the Garden of Eden. Pride is at the root of it all. We think we know what's best. So how ridiculous is it that we could abstain from sexual morality only to bolster ourselves in pride, which is the root of it all? How is that somehow better? No one is good enough. That's why Jesus died. No one can make it on their own. That's why Jesus gave His life. If we believe the same lie that Adam and Eve believed, then we're falling back into this broken system and we'll forever be living our lives miserably seeking satisfaction where it cannot be found and succeeding occasionally and and boasting in ourselves. It's a miserable life. It's not Christianity. It's not the work of the gospel in you. We must repent. Repent of your sexual failures. Yes, Find freedom in Christ. Find satisfaction in Christ. But please, repent. Repent of your self-righteousness. Because you're only piling up the shame on your brother and your sister. One of the clearest examples of those both falling into sexual morality and being buried in the shame of it is King David. David. A man who God says is pursuing him, pursuing the heart of God. A man who is held as a, a, a figure in, in history, a figure in Scripture to be idolized by some, though he should never be. This man who defeated the giant Goliath and, and who led the people of God to finally worship God and stop worshiping idols, though he had his fault. This is a man of God. And he struggled with sin to the point that he would steal another man's wife and have that man killed. I would say that's pretty extreme. You may have a different definition of extreme. In Psalm 51, which we read as our call to worship, David has just experienced a conviction for his sin, his brokenness a brokenness that's brought him to weep. He realizes the consequences of his sin, but more than, more than the consequence, more than the people who were hurt in the process of his sin, his brokenness is about whom he has sinned against. So certainly many people are broken because of sexual sin. Certainly many are damaged. But our sin is ultimately against God. And so we must bring it to God and realize in him alone are we going to find freedom from both the sin and the shame. I just want to read verses eight through twelve from that Psalm fifty one. And what he is crying for is joy. He longs to see his bones that have been broken rejoice. He desires to hear joy and gladness. His cry is for, for his, the joy of salvation to be restored to him. The misuse of this beautiful gift of sex is a symptom of a disease. It's not the disease. If we feel overwhelmed and crushed by it, we need to see that it in itself is not the problem. The problem is what your heart says about Christ. The problem is what your heart says about you. So we must see who our God is. We must see what he's done. Who we are in light of this gospel work. And then what are we to do? Does your soul cry out, Restore to me the joy of your salvation? So we get this. We are commanded to be pure, and then by the grace of God, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and we are pure. So, what about the fight to remain pure? Well, let be your prayer that you would rejoice in your salvation. That you see, Christ is satisfied. So, ask the question Do you see deep satisfaction? found in Christ and in Christ alone. Can you see him giving up his life for you to know that freedom and that joy? Do you hear him saying to you, calling to you, come to me, my grace is sufficient. Rather than trying to live our lives on these temporary highs that are found in, in sexual morality, whatever it might be, pornography, sneaking lustful looks or double takes at, at women in public, flirting with coworkers because it's not that big of a deal, finding the approval of men, finding the approval of women. When you get dressed in the morning, what are you thinking about? Are you trying to impress somebody? Are we longing for this romantic fairy tale? Fantasizing about Mr. Wright or Prince Charming or rec- rescuing the damsel in distress or whatever it might be, this desire to feel complete by someone else. Like, fill in the blank. All of it falls short. This, this weird sense of excitement you have when you think about the way someone looks at you or the way someone feels about you or what you might feel when you look at someone or something. This excitement that you sense about it is an evil. It's, a, it's an evil that is rising up in you to destroy you. Put it out. How do you put it out? Fix your eyes on Christ. We must come to see that the love of Christ is more powerful, more beautiful, more delightful, more joyous, more exciting, more satisfying, more thrilling than anything this world has to offer. Everything you could ever possibly need is found in Him. And in the right context, He has given you many things to enjoy. One of those things is sex with your spouse to His glory, to His praise, as worship to the Creator. And practically, please do the things necessary to guard yourself against these many things. There, there are a lot, there's a lot available. Tec- technology that's available to guard yourself. There's accountability with brothers and sisters who love you to guard you. There's faithful commitment to the Word of God and to prayer, to, to fill yourselves with right things, with good things, to focus on what's good and right and holy, to see what's pure, to meditate on the Gospel and how it's, it's wrapping itself around you and refining you. There's a lot you can do practically, and maybe true love waits is one of them, but your purity is not found in any of those things. It's found in Christ. So no one and no thing can give you righteousness, only Christ. Do not be buried in shame. Please do not be buried in shame. Shame will wear you out and make you worthless as a disciple maker, and that's what this is all about. We have a mission before us, church. There's work to be done, there's loss to be saved. And we are the hands and feet of Christ. We are a model before the world to see this work of the Gospel. So confess your sin, repent of your sin, and show others Jesus is better. And if you're buried in shame, you can't do that. It is the shame that leaves you silent and fruitless. So why not instead proclaim that Christ has, for the joy set before Him, Christ has endured the cross and despised the shame. You are a sinner, we know it. I'm a sinner, we know it. But we're closing in the righteousness of Christ. This frees us to live our lives on mission. And so then we can read passages like Romans 13, 11-14 through 14, that directly opposes sexual morality. We can read passages like that and not feel buried in shame and overwhelmed with frustration at our failures. But we can feel hope and we can feel encouragement to be ready for this mission. Romans 13, 11 through 14. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the work the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensualities, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There's a war going on, both internally and externally. There's a war, your flesh and the spirit. There's a war. You must fight the fight. To put on this light. To shine light to the culture. This, this, is the point, this is the point of the membership covenant. That we'd remember what it looks like to walk in the light. That we remember what we're called to. To live in the darkness. As light bearers. This war that's being fought for the souls of our long lost brothers and sisters. And we have this opportunity to enjoy Christ. To put on display for the world to see. What's more is knowing God will eradicate the lust in us as we're filled with a deeply satisfying love. We're denying the flesh, crucifying the flesh, and we're following Jesus. And others see it and they know we belong to Him. They know we're disciples of Christ. And then we proclaim that truth that that could offer them that freedom. And this all points to this, this overall analogy, this overall picture. This points to the bride, the church. We're the bride of Christ. It all works together. Christ is our groom, and He is sufficient, and He is all satisfying. And so 50 minutes into the sermon, I'll get to the second point. (laughs) We're not going to go into depth with this one. But point two that we're going over this morning from the covenant is number eight. Connecting this. We covenant to seek marriage reconciliation under the direction of elders should marriage become troubled enough to consider divorce? And you are committing to honor marriage as a commitment until death. Now this is simple and it's beautiful, but it's incredibly challenging as married people can attest. We often joke, I think I heard D.A. Carson say it before when I talk to those considering marriage, a joke about never consider divorce But murder, uh, a few times. (laughs) It's it's amazing how beautiful marriage can be, just as it's amazing how beautiful sex can be within marriage, as God designed it. Yet our flesh doesn't allow that to be as simple as it may sound. We are sinners coming together. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be difficulty, and we urge you to seek counsel. And in fact, it's written that we would seek reconciliation before divorce is sought. Or considered, but I would pray that it's before divorce is even a part of the conversation. That you would you would catch all the little foxes, as Song of Solomon says. Be aware of the things that would destroy the vineyard. Assess yourselves. Those not married yet, have premarital counseling, have pre-engagement counseling. Like be aware of your sinful heart and get to know the heart of the one you seek to spend the rest of your life with. Marriage is a profound thing, and divorce is is incredibly disastrous. It destroys. And we, we don't say you can't get a divorce and you have to follow this rule. We say let's stay far from divorce because it destroys, just like sexual morality destroys. We want to guard against it. We want to fight against it. Obviously, no one desires and plans for divorce or they shouldn't on their wedding day, although prenup is a thing. We don't, want to, we don't want to go into marriage thinking divorce is even an option, but we must be ready because it, it happens. It happens among believers. Though no one plans for it. So there must be some things we do that are necessary to guard against it. However, in every in every way, Christ has equipped us to be ministers of reconciliation with one another and for one another. So we, we ask you to seek counsel. The Lord asks you to seek counsel counsel in order to honor marriage because the gift of marriage is a direct example of the bride and and Christ, the church and Christ. It's it's a model. It's a picture for the world to see this is how it looks. This is what it looks like to belong to Jesus. And so there's much more that we could go into. This is an incredibly complex uh, concept and it has a lot of depth. In fact, we have Spoken to this specifically back November 20th. If I recall. I'm just kidding. I read it down. November 20th last year as we worked through the book of Mark. There was a sermon dedicated to understanding divorce and how Christ taught uh, this gift of marriage should be. And so I recommend you go back and listen to that. You can find it on our website. Uh, streaming the podcast won't work because it only goes back a certain amount. But if you go to the website, the resources are available. You can go all the way back to the very beginning. And so unfortunately, I don't, I'm not going to go into uh, that in depth. I felt that we should uh, focus where we did this morning. So it should be understood though that love, commitment, self-sacrifice, repentance, forgiveness, and joys of marriage and reconciliation are to be put on display within marriage. And And I hope that it is your desire to first and foremost, please God, honor God, worship God with your marriage. And if you are doing that, You're pointed in the right direction. So here is where we are. We know that our sin and our shame will cripple us and destroy us. We know that we're given freedom in Christ. And because I'm a dude, every accountability group I've ever been in has primarily focused on lust. It's just the way guys operate. I don't know what you girls talk about while you're braiding hair or whatever you're doing. But... But we talk a lot about it. And, and you would think I would be some sort of expert by now, but I'm not. I do know Jesus is the answer. But navigating it is, is really dependent on where you are in the struggle. And I know that for almost everybody, it's exhausting if it's not rightly rooted in the gospel. If it's about behavior modification, if it's about moralistic deism, You're never going to find your answer. And we know if we've learned anything in in these accountability groups, we know we have to flee, right? We have to run. Like Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife, run. Like Paul writes, flee sexual morality. we got to run. So just run, 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 run. That's why it's exhausting. We're running. Here's the problem. We don't stop and think about where are we running? Think of it like this. My son knows that I'm his father and I will protect him and I will love him. And so when the evil man, John Turpin, (laughs) makes eye contact with him, it's gotten better. But when he makes eye contact with Titus, he runs in terror. Imagine if Titus knew where I was, he knew he could come to me, he knew I would protect him. Imagine if he just kept running around the room. John's going to get me. John's going to get me. He'd be exhausted. That's our problem. We're just running around the room. Where are we running? We have a father who stands with open arms every time we fall, every time we're afraid, every time we feel overwhelmed, every time we feel buried in shame. Our father is open-armed, Beckoning us to Himself. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our satisfaction. He is everything we need. We must run to our Father. Flee sexual morality and run to your Father. It's the only hope. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for the love You have for us. I thank You for the ways in which You have affirmed over and over again that you are our sure refuge, that you are our strength, that you are our satisfaction, that you have given us everything we need in Christ to find all we could ever want. Let it be that we would desire to worship you in every area of our lives, that we'd lay down our idols, that we'd rightly see who we are because of who you are. That we'd experience the liberation that there is to be found in the truth. We'd cling to the hope we have in Christ. That we'd fix our eyes on the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Throwing off the sin and the things that so easily entangle us and running this race with endurance. Fighting to the very end. Waging the war that's going on inside of us. Seeing that the Spirit is at work. And fighting this war on the outside, setting up the necessary precautions and boundaries and restrictions, not so that we can pat ourselves on the back for the good job we did, but so that we can honor You in the way we live our lives, that more and more people would see the the ways in which Christ is satisfying, that we would make disciples of the way we live, of the way we follow You, and by the truth we proclaim. Praise You for Jesus, and I thank You for the Crossing Church this commitment we have to not shy away from difficult things, but to press in and to press out the things that don't belong, that we'd be sanctified by your gospel. To your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.